The Bob Murphy Show, episode 258. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everybody welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show i am going to do a two-part series, this being part one, uh, response to the recent episode of Michael Malice's podcast, You're Welcome, in which he hosted a conversation. It wasn't a debate. It was a conversation, he said, between Dave Smith and Curtis Yarvin, who's also known as Mencius Moldbug. For those who don't know, Curtis Yarvin is someone whose name comes up fairly regularly among libertarian right-winger types, especially those who think that the regular folks don't get it. And there, you know, there's this analysis for those brave enough to go to the extremes. And I don't know if Curtis Yarvin himself refers to himself as a post-libertarian, but the people who do use that term, I think there's a large overlap between that crowd and fans of Curtis Yarvin. And so Curtis, among other things, is very conversant in Austrian economics For example, he's read lots of Mises and Rothbard. I will mention I had done a previous episode of this podcast. I don't remember the episode number off the top of my head, but I'll put it in the show notes page. I critiqued one of Yarvin's, and you said, didn't you call him Curtis a second ago? I did. I can't decide if I feel like I should call him by his first name or his last name. I don't know the guy. I'll call him by his last name. He had done a fairly economic article. I don't think I was responding to something he said. I think it was something he wrote. Because I've had a lot of people emailing me for years at this point saying, hey, Bob, you got to check this guy Curtis Yarvin out. He's one of the freshest, most unique takes for people on, you know, on our side of the fence kind of thing. And he's really got some proposals that are not just radical, but a breath of fresh air. He's saying something genuinely new. And this is the guy to get us out of our log jam. And so I gave him a chance. I really did. And I just didn't see it as I reported And in that particular episode that I did on the Bob Murphy show, again, the episode number escapes me at the moment. I'll link to it, though, on the show notes page of this episode. I just went through and said, sorry, guys, but like on something that's fairly economic that he wrote. And I asked the people who were his fans and also my fans and who were telling me to check them out. I said, "Okay, we'll recommend something. So it wasn't like I went out of my way to find something I thought was wrong. Like I was reading what was supposed to be the best of the best. And I went through one and just my mind picked it apart. And I thought it had mistakes, both big and small, like the spirit and the letter of his posts were both wrong. So this time around, I again had another wave of people because on Twitter, I mentioned that I had watched Malice's episode with Yarvin versus Smith. And I said some preliminary comments there. And once again, I got some people saying, Bob, you know, I love you, but this guy, he's got some good stuff and blah, blah, blah. And I will admit that someone sent me a series of posts that Yarvin did on The business cycle in the Austrian tradition, and specifically Mises' explanation of bank credit expansion and how that causes the unsustainable boom. And I saw it. I got it. In other words, I said, okay, I can see why people like this guy. All right, because he did one of his posts in particular, which I'll link to that too in the show notes page here. 
it seemed basically correct to me, which is kind of an important criterion in my book. But beyond that, given that he was talking about a pretty dry subject, it was pretty entertaining. And it was, I thought, like the way he tried to distill it down to be intuitive for the lay reader. I could say, all right, yeah, I think he got this one right. Whereas the other one that I went through in the previous episode, I thought, no, his attempts to boil this down to the essence is just totally wrong. He's misunderstanding what's going on here. Okay, so having said that, the reason I'm breaking my response to this recent Malice episode up into two parts is what I'm going to do right now in this one is focus on a somewhat narrow economic issue. And I'll just keep this to be a self-contained episode because I can go on at length for some of these sub points. And then in the next episode, I will address the broader issue of what Yarvin's problem with libertarianism is. To avoid confusion, and I hate to make this so nuanced that we run up against quantum physics limitations, but I don't call myself a libertarian anymore. And yet I feel in an issue like this compelled to come in and defend the libertarian position because my problems with libertarians is more like the actual people just have annoyed me so much. I don't want to be associated with them. <laughs> and I don't want to have anything to do with them publicly. And it's just going to be easier for me to get my message out if I don't have that label attached to it at this point. So that's kind of what's going on there. Whereas Curtis Yarvin's problems with libertarianism have nothing to do with the particular people and the avant-garde takes they were making and whatever that I just didn't want to be associated with anymore. So that's the situation in case some of you Say, ah, yes, Bob the Libertarian. And then you see me somewhere saying, I'm, I'm not a Libertarian anymore. I don't call myself that. Then that's what's going on. Okay. So in this episode, what we're going to focus on, I'll go ahead and play an excerpt from Malice's episode. But again, it's going to be this narrow economic claim. So go ahead and play the clip. The tree should be known by its fruit. And when you basically look at the attempts of applying liberal economics to trans-Pacific trade, and you see objectively that you're seeing the destruction of the productive capacity of the United States and basically a concentration of ownership of this capacity in China, worrying about that doesn't make sense from the Adam Smith perspective. From the Adam Smith perspective, consumers are getting the cheap plastic crap, so why does it matter where it comes from? It should be the cheapest. However, if you basically add the term of like a nation is something, a national interest is something. If you add basically the nation as firm into this, then suddenly like the Einsteinian term starts to dominate and Adam Smith becomes really extremely wrong. So for example, I think that one of the things that's cost the Libertarian Party something is that it doesn't really have the language to articulate what globalization has done to most of the United States. Whereas if you basically drive around the middle of the United States, you see these like ruins that are the result of some government policy in the last 25 years. Okay, so there you have it. So again, just to paraphrase in my own words and what I'm going to be responding to, Yarvin, he's actually making two claims. One is that it was libertarian, which also, you know, coincides in this case with Austrian economic recommended coupled with normal human preferences policies that decimated U.S. manufacturing. Right? We don't make stuff in this country anymore. And it's because of free trade, to put it in a nutshell. And then on top of that, Yarvin is claiming, and not only are the libertarians not horrified by the consequences of their policy recommendations, they applaud it because their framework is so screwed up that what's important to them, their value system, the way they evaluate policies, 
their criteria of good policy applauds what happened, right? So it's not like this was even an unintended consequence and geez, well, sorry, we didn't see this coming folks or that they try to avoid the blame and say, well, it's not because of our policies because no, they're like, yeah, this is great. Americans are getting a bunch of cheap plastic crap. Go Bastiat. What's the problem? Because, you know, we libertarians just look at the individual consumer and his gluttony is the highest metric of success or the only metric of success. And, you know, the good of the community and the fact that the U.S. worker needs to be maintained and that kind of stuff, let alone strategic military potence, which is the opposite of impotence. That's not something that occurs to the average randoid libertarian type. Okay. So I'm throwing in some extra words that Curtis Yarvin didn't explicitly say right there, but I think being faithful to the general post-libertarian critique of these libertarian types and their fetish for free trade. Okay. And yeah, in a perfect world where everybody around the globe lived in a basically democratic republic that all had relatively free markets. Okay, sure, maybe free trade would make sense there, but that's not the world we live in, right? That's something else that they often throw on there. Okay, so with that being the position, the elaborated position that I'm now going to be responding to, here we go. So first, let's focus on the actual economic outcomes, and then hopefully I remember to come back to the the libertarian response to it. So on the economic front itself, so it is true that there's different things going on. And so let me just walk through this. So if we're talking about manufacturing. If you look at employment, then, yep, the claim or the stereotype is not wrong. That I'm looking, this is from Fred's chart, all employees manufacturing, getting their data from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. In the late 30s, started out with about 9 million people in manufacturing. That zooms upward to about 17 million, a little shy of that. By 1943, then it falls off a cliff. So that was obviously driven by the war effort. And then, so it plummets 45, well, starting from 44 onwards, it starts dropping rapidly. Demobilization, it troughs in early 46. And then it's, it's a general trend upward. It surpasses the World War II peak in the mid 60s, keeps going up. With each recession, it falls a bit, but then it bounces back and it continues the upward trend. And it peaks around 1979 at about 19.5 million U.S. workers employed in the manufacturing sector. And then it drops sharply in the early recession, the recessions of the early 80s, recovers a little bit, bounces around, falls again in the early 90 recession, recovers a bit, and but it's generally flat throughout the 90s. Okay, and so as of December 1999, we've got 17.3 million people in U.S. manufacturing. And then going into the 2000s, it really does fall like a rock. All right, so the critics are not exaggerating. And that's not driven by, I mean, let me just tell you what it is and then I can speculate as to what drove it. So it falls very sharply in the early 2000s. So it's down to by late 2003, it's down to 14.3 million. Okay, so like a 3 million person drop just in four years there. And then it stabilizes. It doesn't recover. It stabilizes for a bit in the mid-2000s. And then going into the financial crisis, it falls off a cliff again. Looks like a roller coaster that's got two good dips for you. 
And then it troughs in early 2010 at around 11.5 million. Okay, so from over 17 million and change in 99 down to 11.5 million in 2010. All right, so that's a pretty big drop, both in absolute and percentage terms. And then it tepidly recovers and then falls pretty sharply again during the COVID recession. And then it bounced back a little bit, but it's so as of right now, the latest figure I've got on this Fred site is just shy of 13 million. Okay, so again, it was 17.2 million in earlier, even late 2000. And then now it's just shy of 13 million. Okay, so just looking at employment and manufacturing, yes, you could unambiguously say it was solidly growing, steadily growing through the 50s and 60s. It was pretty volatile in the 70s, but still had an arguably upward trend, but then started coming down. And in the mid 80s and 90s, it kind of bounced around, but held its ground and then just got pummeled in the 2000s. And I just, I think it's safe to say that what happened there was what we call globalization. All right. So it wasn't that the Clinton administration in the late 90s did some kind of free trade policy change and then all of a sudden changed all the rules. I think it was more that the relatively open trade policies that had been put in place under, I don't know the exact history of the top of my head, but I think it was that you could argue that Reagan, Bush, the H.W. Bush and Clinton all worked signing treaties and whatever that integrated trading blocks around the world, reducing barriers, and then just innovations in shipping, improvements in manufacturing, and just things like delivering product to ports and stuff in China and other places. Like there were things that had to happen over there in order to make it efficient for U.S. manufacturing to outsource a lot of its operations to these other countries, right? Because it's not just a matter of, oh, they have cheap labor. You still got to be able to get the sweaters and handbags and stuff from the factories in the other countries to the ports, put them on ships, and then get them over here. And just, you know, that takes a lot of coordination and other things to have to come together for that to work. Okay, so definitely employment's way down, but that's not the same thing as saying manufacturing is down, meaning output, okay? Because you could tell a similar story looking at employment in agriculture. And it's like, oh, wow, from 1890 to 1940, the amount of Americans employed in agriculture plummeted. And wow, that's pretty terrible, right? I mean, that's an American farmer. That's a staple of America. And how are we supposed to survive if we can't eat? That's the most important thing there is. And the answer, of course, is well, because productivity went up so much, America was making more food, even with fewer people devoted to that sector. And so that freed up labor to go to other areas. Okay, so that story is true for much of this period. All right, that, let me see here. If you look at an index, so Fred also has industrial production manufacturing from the NAICS series. And I'm pretty sure this is, they say it's real. I think it's real, meaning we don't have to worry about inflation in this. So assuming that that's correct, this index from the early 70s, the index is around 37. And then going into the financial crisis just before that fall, like in early 2008, the index was at 106, okay? So 
what a basically a tripling, right? So the total amount of stuff manufactured in the U.S. And when you say we mean stuff, like we're not counting molecules, you're converting it to dollar terms. And like I said, I believe that this is adjusting for price inflation. That the way we can, as best we can, adjust for that kind of stuff. The fact that different things are being made and how you're going to aggregate it. But doing the best you can with stuff like that, arguably three times as much stuff was manufactured within the U.S. borders in early 2008 compared to 1972 when this series starts. All right, so even though employment is down in U.S. manufacturing, total manufacturing output was still up. And then it did, the index dropped in the 2008 thing and then it recovered a little bit and it has been pretty flat since like 2012. Okay, so there's that. Now, if you break it down even more, and look at the components in manufacturing, they're not all the same. So for example, apparel and leather goods got crushed. It was bouncing around. It was pretty like, so this is an index of real production. It was fairly steady. And then in the late 90s, it started dropping. It got crushed during the early 2000s recession. And then it got crushed again going into 2008. And then it's been low ever since. On the other hand, so for example, I'm looking at a blog post here that the St. Louis Fed put out. So... That particular sector, clothes manufacturing, it went down about 80% since the mid-1990s till now. But on the other hand, computer manufacturing has gone up 1,200% since the mid-1990s. And this is all domestic U.S. production. Okay, so some things are growing, things, some things are shrinking. Car production, I was actually wrong about this. I kind of thought that, yeah, the big three U.S. automakers got hit and that was a decline, but then I thought there was a lot of like Japanese production coming in, like in the Carolinas. So they and then they had to pay the union contracts and whatever that the big three had to with legacy US workers and that I US auto production now was gonna be maybe not the same, but not so much lower than it had been in the and actually no, it actually is down. So incidentally, if you go and look at this stuff, I think some people are getting monthly and annual figures mixed up because I was seeing wildly different estimates. Another distinction is between motor vehicle production and automobile production, that I guess motor vehicle must be a broader category because those numbers aren't even close. So when people talk about cars, I think they mean automobiles, but if you look at motor vehicles, that's a much bigger number. Anyway, just a little inside baseball for any of you who want to go look this stuff up yourself, be careful. And like I said, like I'm seeing, for example, there was this one, a blog post from, it's called The Visual Capitalist website. And it's funny because it looks really professional. Like they got a nice diagram or like a chart they made that looks real official. And they've got like nice graphics showing like a car on an assembly line with robots assembling and everything. You know, I mean, it looked really professional. And yet I'm pretty sure their numbers are totally wrong. I think the author got monthly data and annual data mixed up. But in any event, I believe that annual U.S. auto production, meaning so this isn't like value. We're not taking dollar amounts spent on cars and normalizing it. No, this is like actual how many vehicles were produced in terms of autos. So in 93, the number was about 6 million. And then it kind of steadily declined through the late 90s, 2000s, dropped sharply in the recession of 2008, and then bounced back a little bit and then just declined again, such that now in 2021 it was about 1.6 million. All right, so that's a pretty big drop in terms of how many actual cars were made in the United States. 
And again, I believe these numbers, it's not saying made by US companies. I believe this is saying like even if Nissan or whatever has an auto plant in the Carolinas, but the cars are being made by American workers in the United States on its soil, I think those numbers are all in this and still it's down a lot. So anyway, that was, I was actually surprised by that. I didn't realize it was such a big drop. So you see those different components. Nonetheless, big picture, the latest number they've got is October 2022 for industrial production. The index is around 103. And that's... I'm just going back to see. That's as high as it was back in like 2007. All right, And at that point, that was like a record high. All right. So takeaway is up until just before the financial crisis of 2008, according to a standard measure, U.S. manufacturing output was the highest it had ever been in the history of the country, even though the amount of workers in that sector was much lower than it had been in decades. Okay, so that's just to get your bearings and understand that some of these anecdotes and, you know, particular towns are decimated by outsourcing and whatever, and the coal mines dried up and this happened and it's a ghost town now, or geez, once that four plant shut down, the neighborhood went to crap and da 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 Yes, but some of that stuff is not reflective of the country as a whole. It's just particular cities getting hit. Not that it's no big whoop to those people involved, but because, you know, even Dave's response to Yarvin, I think might have conceded a little bit too much saying, oh, yeah, I travel around the country or my father-in-law's trucker or something, and he's telling me all these stories. And I think some of the description of how much the U.S., ability to produce stuff has been hobbled is a little bit overblown. Hey folks, let's take a break from the exciting analysis to discuss the upcoming debate at the Soho Forum on Thursday, January 26th of 2023. Lawrence White is going to be debating Frederick Mishkin. The resolution is replacing the Federal Reserve with free market institutions would significantly improve the economy's money, banking, and financial systems. As you can imagine, Larry is in the affirmative and Mishkin is in the negative. So as far as I know, there are still tickets available. Go to thesohoforum.org to get your tickets if you can be in town. Again, this is January 26th. One last thing I'll mention in case you don't know, Mishkin is a big deal. He has a very popular text on this stuff. So it was a coup for Gene Epstein that he was able to get Michigan involved in a debate like this. So we will see how Larry does against the big gun, Frederick Michigan. Moving on. When it comes to Yarvin's problem with this outcome, there's at least two, and I'm going to focus on two issues he might have. So one he explicitly said, and the other one he didn't actually say it, at least that I caught, but I've heard so many people who bring up this line of critique say it, that I'm going to cover it too, just so people don't think I'm leaving out something essential. Okay, so the first line, the thing that Yarvin actually said, is to just address it directly and just say, no, this outcome per se is bad. Like, it's not good if, because of trade policies or lack of other government intervention, that we just sit back and because of changes in shipping costs or whatever, currency moves, blah, 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 U.S. factories shut down, because it's just cheaper to import those goods from abroad. And yeah, you dumb libertarians are all excited about U.S. consumers getting stuff cheaper, but you're neglecting the plight of the worker. 
and you're not thinking holistically. You're not thinking of the nation as a whole. You're just looking at your narrow, greedy self-interest and your addiction to, I think he called, what do you call it? Cheap plastic crap or something. Okay, so let's just take that on. So on the one hand, this is just a quick comment. There's a little bit of an incongruity there because on the one hand, when they're talking about the noble U.S. worker, you know, and it's a, an honest living, you put on your overalls and you go to the factory and you work eight hours and you punch the card and you come back. By gosh, that's what this country was built on. And let's not knock that. Instead of having all these, you know, corporate execs going in with their Excel spreadsheets, sipping lattes and whatever, playing Minesweeper, bunch of soy boys, right? So, okay. But then Yarvin is also dismissing the products and saying, oh, they're just buying a bunch of cheap plastic crap from China. So which is it, right? If the jobs that are being outsourced are just making, quote, cheap plastic crap, well, then that's not a very noble job to be losing, right? Why wouldn't we just outsource that and let our workers focus on important stuff, by gosh, like designing jet engines or growing more wheat for the world will be the breadbasket to the world. Are we going to make cheap plastic crap? No, let the Chinese do that, right? So there's a disconnect that like we're losing in terms of our manufacturing output is really important stuff like cars and whatever other things involving heavy industry and whatnot. Real essential things, things that if we were going to fight a war, we would need steel and blah, blah, blah. And yet we don't say, oh, but these things really are important. And so on the plus side, we're getting these vitally important things like cars and steel and critical items for heavy production at much lower prices. And so that's providing serious value to the U.S. consumer households because now they can get their cars more cheaply and a car is a staple of American life. And so that's good if they can get cars more cheaply from abroad than they can get them domestically. And wow, if we could get steel cheaper from foreigners, well, look at how much what a shot in the arm that's going to be. Well, now we don't want shots in the arm, right? That that's going to be, look at all the sunlight and natural vitamins from a well-balanced diet that doesn't rely on the food pyramid we're going to be getting from abroad, right? What a way to revitalize U.S. industry to get it much more steel for the given dollar expenditure. Look at how many more factories and skyscrapers we can build now because we have cheaper supply of steel, right? But no, it's set up as the jobs we're losing are really important things like car production, steel production. We're going to lose a war, but what we're importing is just a bunch of cheap plastic crap. Right, so again, just got to at least be consistent here. Now, just putting that aside, just go right to the heart of it. It's not obvious that you're making the country richer if one group of people has to subsidize another group to keep them doing something that's now inefficient. All right, because that's what's happening that we're saying. Well, before I get into that, a lot of what Dave said is true. All right, so I don't want to... In other words, the outcome, even though I've earlier said it's not as bad as I think sometimes people make it, even to the extent that it is bad, that's not purely a free market phenomenon. I think that's the main thing that Dave said in response. You know, there's regulations in place, minimum wage laws, all kinds of OSHA requirements, all kinds of like like the Clean Air Act and things like this, you know, all sorts of regulations put on vehicles sold in the U.S., things like of this nature that make it harder to do business in the U.S., particularly to run a factory, okay? And so there's different reasons that these penalties, with some of the stuff like if there's a tailpipe emission standards, I think those apply just as much to foreign cars that are imported as they would to domestically produced ones. So that one, 
on the margin might not be that big a deal. It makes cars more expensive, so right? it pushes people to have to take the subway or whatever rather than owning their own vehicle. But I don't know that on the margin it makes them prefer a foreign car to a domestic one. Except in the sense that like Ford specializes in big heavy cars and Toyota specializes in lighter ones, that kind of thing. So that's all true. All right, so I don't, I don't want to just blow through that. Let's just, again, take it the worst case scenario on its face. Suppose it were true that even in a free market, that what would have happened is economic reality would have dictated that a lot of manufacturing gets outsourced from the U.S. abroad. So again, I want us to go back to the agricultural example. That do you think that was a sign of economic retrogression? That the U.S was able to produce more agricultural output with fewer workers because that was painful. That was that dislocated a lot of people. But I think we're generally okay with the idea that no, because notice for us to be holding up manufacturing as the ideal, you had to have that earlier innovation or revolution, right? And so to go from agricultural, an agricultural economy to a manufacturing economy, and then what? To an information economy. And so a lot of the jobs are lost in manufacturing and they open up what? In software production and, you know, other forms of information production. And there's a lot of stuff in the financial sector that I think is driven by Fed policy. So like if we still had sound money, I don't think the financial sector would be as big as it now is, like in terms of percentage GDP and number of people employed in it. So a lot of that stuff, I would say, is not actually productive, but some of it would be, and it still would be like that in a market. All right. So if we had a genuine free market, then I would be more confident that these large scale changes, the shrinking of some industries and expansion of others, at least in terms of employment, would be benign. All right. So there's, there is that element and that's definitely part of the answer. Now, just to keep focusing on that though, on its face, What's happening is that, let me put it this way, nobody is forcing Americans to spend their money on imports. That's voluntary choices that they make. And so what Yarvin and other people who don't like free trade and who lament the loss of U.S. manufacturing capacity overseas and, wow, if we had sensible trade policy in this country, they wouldn't just sit there and let that let us urinate away our advantages. And this is crazy. And why don't we get some politicians in Washington who get their heads out of their rears and Blah, 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 blah. All of that is saying is Americans should not be allowed to spend their money how they want. That some Americans want to spend their money buying a Japanese car and they should not have that option. They should be forced to say, if you want to drive a car, you got to make one produced by Americans. Sorry, sorry you got to buy one produced by Americans. Or if you want to wear a sweater or buy a hand, your wife wants a new handbag. Well, it's got to be made in the United States. She does not have the option to buy it from foreigners. And by massively restricting what Americans can spend their money on, we're going to make Americans richer. That's the argument is, and no, that just, that doesn't work. Yeah, it helps some Americans, the ones who are otherwise going to go out of business, right? Like if you say, oh, we're going to keep afloat U.S. auto production by taking away options for Americans. Like it might just be an all or nothing. It might just be, we're going to put a tax on Japanese cars coming in. So it's not that we're going to literally ban them but we're going to put a what $5,000 surtax on them. Okay, so yeah, that helps U.S. auto producers. 
but it obviously hurts U.S. auto consumers. And it's not just a wash. I'm not going to go through the argument now, but under standard conditions and making reasonable assumptions, the gains to the U.S. auto producers are exceeded by the losses to the U.S. consumers. In other words, U.S. consumers lose more by having their options restricted than U.S. auto producers gain, meaning on net, Americans are poorer because of that policy. So you're not making America richer. You're making some Americans richer and other Americans poorer. And the gains to the winners are smaller than the losses to the losers. And so, you know, going in terms of like psychic utility, you can't compare them, so you can't add it up. But if you're looking in terms of trying to measure it in dollar terms or something, then again, the standard results are the losses to the losers are bigger than the gains to the winners. And so it's an inefficient policy. You're making the country poorer as a whole. And just if you're like, well, see, yeah, but still a principle. Okay, well, let me give you different examples. I know this is kind of fanciful, but just think through the logic of it. Suppose somehow somebody came up with this technique where you build a factory, you pump wheat in one end of the factory, just shipping all these bushels of wheat, and out come really cool cars on the other end. And in terms of like the prices you have to pay for the amount of wheat that you need in order to turn it into cars is such that doing this process, you can undercut U.S. auto manufacturers. And so Americans, if they were given the freedom to do so, would patronize this new company that could make cars out of bushels of wheat, right? So there's notice this is all domestic. They're buying wheat from American farmers, they're hiring U.S. workers, and they're making the cars that way. It just so happens that you don't need that many workers. This is the way this process works. It takes fewer workers per car using the wheat production process than it takes if you do it the conventional way that cars used to be made. All right. And so if we just let it market forces rip, let consumers spend their money how they want, they're going to buy cars from this process. And that will put a lot of Americans out of work. The Americans who used to go to the factories to make cars are going to get laid off. And the question is, should the government let that happen? And if you don't think they should, okay, but then I can just keep bringing up all kinds of examples. Like anytime someone comes up with a new technique for making something, that requires less labor, are we going to ban that? What if somebody comes up with a cure for cancer? There's going to be a lot of doctors. Where are they? Are those oncologists? I think that's what it is. <laughs> I get my professions mixed up, my branches of medicine. I always think a pulmonologist studies the heart when no, it's the lungs. That's a cardiologist, right? Oh my gosh, all these poor oncologists. You know how much time they spend going to school, how much debt they have. And now, just when they're about to get going, some jerk comes along and comes up with a cure for cancer. You just take a pill or go get an injection and then the cancer's gone. Man, those poor doctors, they're ruined. We should probably pass a law against that, right? Well, I hope people will see, well, no, we wouldn't do that there. And you say, okay, well, that's because that's something serious, Bob. Well, having a, an affordable car is serious too. What if somebody comes up with a cheap way to build really sturdy houses that puts a lot of other people out of business? Should they be allowed to do that? If someone wants to open a Walmart, that puts a lot of mom and pop stores out of business. Should they be allowed to do that? Okay, so innovation always hurts certain individuals who are doing things the old and now inefficient way. And But if we just outlaw that every time or put huge handicaps in front of those people or obstacles, that would slow progress. And so I would argue as a general rule, again, if we're just talking about outcomes, we're not worried about the principle of it and property rights because the answer is pretty clear if you go that route. But here we're just looking at effects. Still, 
if you just have a general policy of let voluntary trades go through, then yes, each specific innovation hurts the old guard, the entrenched people who are doing it the old way, and it helps the consumers. And the gains to the consumers outweigh the losses to the old guard. And so if you just keep allowing innovation, innovation in different sectors, over time, everybody basically benefits. Because even the people who lose out in their role as producer occasionally, and they get dislocated and have to go do something else, that's okay. Because even if they, in a sentence, like take a pay cut, because again, because so, some new innovation came in, they lost their old job. They now have to go do something else that pays less in dollar terms and has to pay less because otherwise they would have switched even without the innovation that got them to be laid off. But now everything that they go, when they go to the store with their smaller paycheck, just about everything's cheaper because there've been innovations in all the different fields, right? So that's what progress is. That's what it looks like. People don't just stay doing the same type of job decade after decade. They would be stagnant. You wouldn't improve. The way we are much richer and our ancestors, well, there's two things. We accumulate capital and we have technological innovations and we act on that innovation. We rearrange how things are made. It would be silly not to. Okay, so I'm trying to argue back to my hypothetical if somehow and did come up with a somehow some recipe by which pump wheat in the front end of the factory and out comes cars the other end that takes relatively few workers to oversee that process and you're okay with that. Well, now I'm just going to tweak it a little bit. What we do is we don't take the wheat and put it into a factory that's on U.S. soil and get cars to come out the other end. Instead, we ship the wheat to ports, load it onto ships, send them across the ocean, and then the ships come back and they have Toyotas on them. So that's a different way that we transform U.S. wheat into cars that have not been made by conventional U.S. auto producers. So if you are okay with the results of the first one, you should be okay with the results of this one because the way that the wheat gets turned into cars really doesn't affect the logic of the argument. So by the way, this is, I just tweaked an argument that David Friedman came up with. Okay, so that's kind of like the standard economic utilitarian response to claims that outsourcing and free trade make the country poor. Now, there I'm just taking it head on, just looking at like the job loss, you know, oh, what was the U.S. worker going to do? That sort of thing. People need to have dignity, right? So I'm again arguing the workers are going to have a more stable foundation if they get rearranged and go to where their niche is. And if the goods they're buying are cheaper because of allowing innovation in all the different fields, that that's the way to make the average U.S. worker have a more stable foundation and to be richer is to allow unfettered innovation and let consumers spend their money how they want to. Because again, let me just emphasize that point. Curtis Yarvin can appeal to people. He can try to convince them to spend their money the way he thinks they should. But if they don't want to, and he ultimately you know, runs to the government and says, well, we're going to have to use force on these people because they're too stupid to see the big picture like I can. Just be aware at least that's what you're doing. Now, Yarvin, I guess, <laughs> to his credit, was like, oh, yeah, people are stupid and I am smarter than they are. And that is what we're doing. Like he wouldn't flinch from that probably the way others might. So at least he'd be aware of what he's doing. Okay. But then there's a more sophisticated type of argument that goes something like this. It says, yeah, if let's say like the Chinese government is subsidizing its exporters and it throws U.S. manufacturers out of work or out of business, U.S. workers who are in manufacturing get laid off. If that was just a new permanent situation, fine. Your libertarian arguments, Murphy, would make sense. 
American workers would get reallocated. They would do something else. So then not only would we have all the cars and the TVs and the handbags and the sweaters, but then we would have whatever the U.S. workers were now making also. So we'd have more stuff. And yeah, those U.S. workers would be worse off, but the general consumer would be better off. Americans as a whole would be richer, blah, blah, blah. We got it. But that's not what's going on, Murphy. The argument continues. What's going on in the real world is it's just a temporary strategy to cripple U.S. capabilities. And then once our manufacturing sector is kaput and all the old workers who knew how to make stuff are retired or dead and all the patterns in U.S. industry have been revamped and whatever. And so now all that knowledge, the crucial institutional know-how was gone. Now the Chinese end, government ends its subsidies and its exporters jack their prices up to the true market level and they just dominate the field. And then Americans get crushed by higher prices. And you know, at this point, we can't just reboot our manufacturing sector from scratch and we're screwed. Or a variant of that argument, if a war breaks out, the fact that we know how to make the latest version of Microsoft Word isn't going to be too much help when the Chinese have all the steel. All right, this, that's a version of it. And so rather than be obtuse and short-sighted and just caring about corporate profits next quarter, why don't we take the long-run view, look at the national interest, and do things like maintain a basic defense capacity infrastructure? Things that are vital to national security, why don't we have policies in place that make sure those sectors stay afloat? Okay, so that kind of an argument. Nope, I'm not buying it. If we had a genuine free market, and people say, well, we don't, I know. But here the claim has been, you libertarians with your worship of the radical free market are stupid and short-sighted. So to first defend against that, I have to show no, an actual free market would not lead to that absurdity. An actual free market could handle that type of contingency better than politicians, right? So again, because here it's not enough just for Curtis Yarvin or somebody else to come up with some hypothetical thing where the market might not be perfect. If you're going to advocate a government quote solution, that means in practice, you have to think people like Maxine Waters and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are going to do a better job planning U.S. steel capabilities than shareholders with their own money on the line. You really think that? Or, oh, no, no, Bob, we'll reform the political system. We'll get it right soon enough so that when the war with China comes, we'll be ready. Don't worry. It, it shouldn't be take us too long to clean up Washington and drain the swamp. Oh, really? Okay. So how might this work? The basic insight here is in a scenario where that type of thing did happen, that imports flood the U.S. market, put U.S. manufacturers out of business. Then after a while, the foreign exporters jack up their prices. So now U.S. consumers have to pay a lot more than they would have had to pay had the U.S. capability been maintained all along. Then in that type of scenario, speculators can look to the future and say, oh, there's a chance now that, you know, our industry is shedding jobs, we can see that possibility is on the table now. 10 years from now, even though prices on whatever, sweaters are $10 that these foreigners are shipping us and, you know, Walmart's selling them and U.S. manufacturers having to pay U.S. labor costs and blah, 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 and then overtime pay and OSHA regulations and all this. There's no way they can compete with that. The U.S. manufacturers to make comparable sweater, they got to charge 20. But we look ahead and see that those foreign, probably wouldn't be from China, it'd be from somewhere else. China, I don't know, that makes sweaters because they're advancing too. 
wherever the sweaters are coming from, that they're going to charge us 25, 10 years from now. Again, inflation adjusted. I'm holding the value of a dollar constant in these calculations or these assumptions, right? So right now we're getting flooded with $10 sweaters. That's going to put U.S. manufacturers out of business. And but down the road, they're going to jack up prices to 25, whereas the U.S. could produce at 20. Okay, so in a situation like that, what the speculators would do is they would just load up on sweaters and say, okay, well, I'm going to buy a bunch of sweaters at 10 because there's a chance down the road they're going to be selling for 25. And so then I'm going to unload them. And then so instead of selling it, so the market price staying at 25 with me unloading them, it would get pushed down. Right, so that's one obvious thing. And that would be more relevant as the threat became more tangible, right? Like instead of it being some long distance thing, if it was like, no, I could see how three years from now they could really jack the prices up. Well, it doesn't take long or not that expensive to just stockpile a bunch of sweaters for three years. And notice you could roll the inventory over in case you're thinking, well, sweater styles change and whatever. And what you buy now is not going to be in fashion three years. You could roll them over, roll the inventory over. All right. So that's in case you're missing the logic there. Because you bought originally at 10, and then let's say prices go up to 12. So you're selling a one-year-old sweater at 12, and it's still not quite out of fashion yet because it was only made a year ago. And then with the revenue, you can go buy a newly made sweater for 12, right? So it's not, you're not losing money by swapping out the inventory as prices rise over time. So you locked in your purchase price at 10, plus whatever the carrying costs are, all right? And you, so you do that. And then when they get up to 25, then you unload your inventory. And so American consumers aren't paying 25 because the speculators saw that coming. All right. So there you sort of get the best of both worlds that you load up at 10 and then keep the price from getting too high at the end. So that's better than if you just completely blocked off foreign trade altogether the whole time. And then American consumers just pay 20 the whole time. All right. So there's that kind of thing. But you say, okay, fine for something like that. But something like steel or where we can't, yeah, you can maybe stockpile it a little bit, but no, I mean, you, you need to have that infrastructure in place. Okay, you can get as esoteric as you want. So the way the market could handle something like that is, again, speculators come in, they can assess the situation, you get people with their own money on the line, experts who stand to make millions or lose millions if they're right or wrong, not just political commentators, people writing blog posts and stuff saying what the government ought to go do and make the welfare of the country dependent on their accountability-free pontifications, these speculators could say, oh, I think there's a real possibility that as foreign producers have cornered our steel market and U.S. steel production is collapsing, that a war could break out, let's say, in three years, and then we're going to be in trouble. And domestic steel prices are going to go through the roof, especially because, you know, we're doing the analysis here and look at how many steel producers actually would side with our enemies if such a war break out. And they may just all agree to cut off supplies to the U.S. So if that sort of scenario is realistic, because again, it's not just that it's not produced in the U.S. It have to be that no steel producer on earth wants to stay on good terms with the U.S. Or if they did, that the U.S. Navy wouldn't be able to keep shipping lanes open or something, right? So it's actually a harder problem. It would be harder for it to be a problem. That's what I mean to say. So it's less of a problem than just not being able to produce it on U.S. soil. But okay, but let's just say there's a scenario where that actually could happen, that the enemies figure out a way to do that. Okay, so in that scenario, what would happen is the market price of steel in the U.S. would skyrocket. And so one way you could profit from that is the speculators could say, oh, so if 
I don't know what the units are that they quote, they typically sell steel in. So I'm just going to use index numbers. So let's say conventionally right now, the U.S. steel sells at 100 and the foreigners come in and they undercut it and they're selling it at 80. You know, the U.S. producers can't compete with that, so they all go out of business. But then the war breaks out and then steel prices on the domestic market jump up to 300. Okay? So the speculators see that sort of situation coming. So what do they do? They buy call options on U.S. steel with a strike price of, let's say, 250. Okay? Because in the scenario where steel is actually selling for 300, for them to be able to buy it at 250 means they make 50 as a spread there, right? Because they can make the contractual. So a call option gives you the right, but not the obligation to buy at that strike price. So they have the option if steel prices do hit anything above 250, then they exercise the option. They can buy at 250, turn around and sell it at the going market price and reap the difference as profit. Okay, so they have to pay. You can't just get options. No one's going to sell you a call option for free. So they have to pay for that. All right, so now who would be selling such a thing? Who would sell a call option with steel at a very high, what's called out-of-the-money strike price? Well, some other people who maybe own steel plants, the ones that are starting to get shuttered because right now the going price is 80 and they needed it to be 100 to stay in business. And so they would sell a bunch of these call options that says, we will sell you this many units of steel on this date 10 years from now at the price of 250. And so how are they going to be able to fulfill that obligation if contract gets exercised is they keep their steel plant operational. Now, depending on the specifics, maybe they put it in mothballs and they just go around and check the belts every once in a while and oil a thing and blah, 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 and do a little test run just to make sure, flush the toilets, just to make sure the thing can be turned on if they need to. Or maybe it makes sense to go ahead and produce, quote, at a loss because the variable costs are lower than 80. You know what I mean? In other words, given that they're going to keep that factory sitting there on the soil and keep it operational with you know, basic maintenance, maybe it makes sense to go ahead and run the thing. So it wouldn't make sense if you didn't have the call option, but because they sell these call options now, the money they get from the sale of the call options allows them to subsidize keeping this thing in, in existence. So effectively, if they're bringing in 20 to make up for the fact that they're only getting 80 in revenue, whereas before they were getting 100 per unit of steel. All right, so obviously I'm being real fanciful and not too specific here, but that's the general flavor of how it could work. And so you don't need the government to come in and make the decision that, oh, in our view, we're going to limit foreign imports to artificially prop up U.S. domestic steel production because there could be a war at some point. And we wouldn't want to be caught in a situation where we have no domestic steel production capacity. And so, yeah, that's going to make U.S. factories have to pay higher steel prices. But so be it. That's a price we're willing to take or we're willing to pay. Well, how do you know that that makes sense? That might be crazy. So the mechanism I described will at least make sense. Whereas in a situation where, no, the chance, it, like if it's, no, there's not going to be a war anytime in the next 10 years, that's crazy. Then the numbers just aren't going to work. All right, whereas as if war does become more likely, then the numbers do start to work and it does make sense. Okay, so that's the good thing about my approach is that realistic threats are the ones that get taken seriously and that there's adequate preparation for. Okay. Last thing I'll discuss is I do believe that Yarvin is right when he says that 
the libertarian response on free trade issues is obtuse. Okay, so I don't necessarily agree with Yarvin's particular the specifics of how he criticized them. Because again, he I told you, he, he's like, oh, this cheap plastic crap. Well, okay, but then you shouldn't worry about outsourcing the production of cheap plastic crap. Who cares whether the U.S. makes cheap plastic crap? But where he is right, and I'll try to remember to put a link to this in the show notes page, folks, is that they'll be really glib and say things like, a trade deficit just means we're getting more goods shipped to us than we're shipping abroad. So isn't that a bargain? Something like that. I've seen, like even the Wall Street Journal one time, I think it was in bed by Robert Barrow. So Barrow didn't say anything that was incorrect. I want to be clear. But the Wall Street Journal copy editor, whoever, editors, they put a subtitle on Barrow's piece that was just wrong. All right. So in other words, they read his piece, misunderstood the lesson from it, and then summarized it with a little statement in the subtitle that was just flat out wrong. Okay, so that's what I mean when I'm saying a lot of the standard arguments for free trade Put it to you this way, they bend over backwards so much to defend the legitimacy and the benignity, benignity of trade deficits that sometimes they say things that would imply running a trade surplus is bad. When no, if we're talking about free trade, the countries that happen to be running a trade deficit, yeah, that's okay. That's justified. They should, you know, their government doesn't need to take action. The flip side, the countries that are running trade surpluses, because there have to be countries running trade surpluses if the U.S. is running a trade deficit. That's also benign from their point of view. So their government doesn't need to run policies to stop those wicked trade surpluses that are making their people poor. Okay, and again, to repeat my point, sometimes American libertarians, when they try to justify trade deficits and how, oh, don't worry about it, they actually go too far. And they make it look like a trade deficit per se makes your country richer using arguments that would mean a trade surplus is making your country poor when no, that's not true. Okay, so. I'll wrap it up because I've gone long on this particular episode now. So I'll, I'll just wrap it up. But if you want to see me walk through that, I will link to an article. But again, the, in case you can't stand it, you just need to know it has to do with saying that, oh, a trade deficit means we import more stuff from foreigners measured in dollar terms than they buy from us. So aren't we getting the better end of the deal? Like, don't we want to be getting more stuff from foreigners than we have to send to them in exchange? Duh. And no, that's goofy. If it were just that, that would be the terms of trade. It wouldn't be a trade deficit. Like if we could just convince the world to take some of our jet engines and our software programs and financial engineering products from Wall Street in exchange for cars and sweaters and barrels of oil, that would be great. But that's not what happens. It's not that the rest of the world values our exports as much as we value their imports. We have a trade deficit because the rest of the world values our exports less then we value their imports, okay? And so just to use a household analogy, a kid's running debts on his credit card, right? He works a job, the mall, let's say, and he makes $10,000 a year, he lives at home, but he buys $14,000 worth of stuff that year. And his dad's looking over his shoulder like, how'd you afford that? And he goes, oh, because I, you know, I put the $4,000 difference on my credit cards. And the dad's kind of upset and the kid says, no, no, no I'm actually smart. I convinced the rest of the world to send me $14,000 of goods and services when all I had to do was produce $10,000 worth of services by working at the mall. So clearly, I exploited everybody, walked away $4,000 richer because I got $14,000 worth of stuff by only having to give up $10,000. <laughs> right? No, duh, that's not right. His debt went up $4,000. And that's exactly what happens in the U.S. context when they're on a trade deficit. Now, 
it's not necessarily debt like a credit card, right? And there's different scenarios and it's fine. Like if a foreigner acquires ownership in a U.S. company and the U.S. company then builds a factory or something, that's okay. That's not a sign of fiscal irresponsibility, right? So a trade deficit can be perfectly benign, but I'm saying the mere fact that the U.S. is getting more goods and services than it sells doesn't mean, haha, we drove a hard bargain and the rest of the world wishes they had our skills in negotiation. That's not what it means. Okay, I will stop there. Remember, if you want to see the links for this episode, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 258. Next time, I will circle back and do some more excerpts from the Michael Malice episode with Curtis Yarvin and Dave Smith to talk more generally about Yarvin's problems with libertarianism. Till then, take care. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.